Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. And this is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Baltimoreans, the show that never fails to prompt passionate responses from its listeners. It was horrible when I heard it. We've got a fantastic show for you this evening, folks. In just a few minutes, we're going to chat with Wendy Thurm, a contributing writer for Fangraphs, Sports on Earth, and a variety of other premium baseball news outlets. She'll join us to talk about the kerfuffle slash brouhaha slash tete-a-tete slash ethical clown show that erupted last week when Major League Baseball or <laughs> Apple depending on which one of them you ask, unceremoniously yanked a number of independently produced baseball podcasts from the iTunes store. We've also got a brand new installment of our seventh inning sketch in which... Uh, oh, uh, uh, hang on, folks. Alan is drawing his finger across his throat at me. What, what's up, Smith? I'm sorry, Sam, but I, uh, I just got a text from our lawyer, and we're no longer allowed to call that segment the seventh inning sketch. Evidently, Major League Baseball owns the copyright on the phrase seventh inning stretch, as well as any and all forms of wordplay based on same. Oh. Uh, okay. Well, that's fine, I guess. I'm sure we can come up with something else. Uh, let me just think for a second. Um, oh, I got something. Uh, okay, well, I'll just pick it back up. We've got a brand new installment of our Chuckle Curve segment, wherein... What, Smith? Sorry, dude. I just got another text from Chadwick over here. We can't use Chuckle Curve either because MLB apparently has the same rights to the phrase Knuckle Curve. Really? What about Bullpun Session? Lafternoon Game? Clean Up Titters? Just a bit outside? Uh, nope, 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 and no. Uh, although in the case of that last one, only because it's really just too awful even for this show. Wow. Man. They're really covering their bases, huh? Chadwick says you can't say that either. Yeesh! Can we just ask Chadwick to come up with some approved language for the title of this segment? Uh, yes, he says we're in the clear if we call it Portion D of the Program in Question. Oh, come on. Really? All right, fine. <sighs> this week on Portion D of the Program in Question, turn out the lights, climb under your blankets, shine a flashlight on your podcast listening device of choice, and prepare to shiver in fear as we reveal yet another previously undisclosed historical document we'll present to you on the air for the first time in audio history. The Horror of the House of Dr. James Andrews. Of course, no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Drungo Hayeswood Franchise Report. Now, I'll bet you didn't know that the Orioles had a player named Drungo Hayeswood. But if there's any purpose at all to this program, and I'm not claiming there is, mind you, but if there is a point to what we do here at Hootenanny Studios every week, it's to make sure that people don't forget that the Baltimore Orioles once rostered a man named Drungo LaRue Hayeswood, who, to quote from his Wikipedia page, was known as a power hitter who struck out frequently and had difficulty hitting a curveball. Hayeswood had more strikeouts than hits in every single season he played, at every level, both major and minor league. He made his major league debut in 1980, appearing in six games and going hitless in five plate appearances 
with four strikeouts. Now, really, what is, what situation do you have to be in for someone who strikes out more often than they hit in the minors to make it to the major leagues? Or to warrant a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Fair point. But if there was ever a ball player in the long, rich tapestry of Orioles history who deserved to have his legacy honored every week by this program in particular, it's Drungo Hayeswood. We're sort of the Drungo Hayeswood of the Baltimore sports scene, I think. <laughs> well, Drungo as a human being was not defined by his meager performance in the big leagues. First of all, it's not as though he had no talent whatsoever. He slugged 500 in 1981 at AA Charlotte, after all. But more importantly, he was, like all of us, a person of many talents and interests. It was the complex interplay between each of these factors that made him the man that he was. And in that way, morons, he was not dissimilar to this episode. <laughs> a loose amalgamation of ideas and concepts that come together to form an underwhelming entity with a silly name. Ultimately, its meaning is likely to be muted by the trumpets of history, drowned out amidst the clamor of other more relevant voices, like those of the hosts of our Sister Wife podcasts <laughs> here on the Baltimore Sports Report Network, available, in some cases, in the iTunes store. But for this brief moment, friends, episode 94 of Baltimoreans has a presence in your life. It means something. But what exactly? Let us turn now to our chief relevance correspondent here at Hootenanny Studios, Alan Smith, for the answer to that question. Thank you, Sam, because 94 is an explosive number. How explosive, you ask? Well, 94 is the atomic number of plutonium, certain isotopes of which are fissile, meaning that they can sustain a nuclear chain reaction. Thanks to some of the greatest minds of our great-grandparent generation, the phrase weapons-grade plutonium has joined sit down we have to talk and time to visit Dr. Andrews as one of the more chilling phrases that can be uttered in the English language. Dr. Robert Oppenheimer reflected on what he had wrought after seeing the immense power of plutonium unleashed in the Manhattan Project with the following words. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Oppenheimer is, of course, quoting Vishnu there from the Bhagavad Gita, a 700-verse discussion between two men on a battlefield that serves as the core of the Hindu religious texts. The Gita originated as a small part of the epic Mahabharata poem, which is best dated to around the 8th century BC, but due to the Gita's specific popularity, it was repeated and retold so many times that the final conception is dated as much as 600 years later. It's also interesting that a discussion of Dharma, which is essentially what is right, and yoga, or essentially spiritual exercise, can be held by men on chariots as battle lines are arrayed around them. Interesting as well that Oppenheimer chooses to invoke this text, which he is said to have read in the original Sanskrit, to describe the immense destructive power of the atom. In fact, the allegory of war that is the central device of the Gita separates it from many other founding religious texts, and it anchors it in a space that many observers find unusual or even actively unholy. Why choose to hold such philosophical and spiritual musings in this setting? But it's actually this metaphorical tool that I think draws me to the Bhagavad Gita. I think there's a great deal of truth to be found in the juxtaposition of spiritual enlightenment and potential battle. 
And I think part of that resonance is because we turn every week to the game of baseball as an extended metaphor to help us make some sort of tortured sense out of our otherwise incomprehensible reality. This podcast is, in some ways, a theory that holds not only is there some truth and meaning to life, but that we can grapple with it best through trying to understand the game, and by looking for the sometimes hidden connections between baseball, sports, and our own tempestuous struggles. It holds that we can glean some faint outline of the rules that govern our reality, even if only for a moment, and even if only reflected in the dust kicked up under the horse's hooves or in a collision at home plate. Now, perhaps the connection between a holy text and what we talk about here while discussing a silly children's game is a little bit overwrought, and it would not be the first time an introduction to Baltimoreans could be accused of such. But while many see the sports world as only a modern opiate to confuse and befuddle the masses, I see it more as a puzzle. A puzzle that, were we to solve it, might shed some light on the reasons that we live and breathe and strive. Although, to be fair, the Simpsons see it more as the other thing, and they've been on the air for more than 30 years. Hi, folks. Bob Mark McGuire. Big Mac himself. Who'd have thunk it? Young Bart here was right. We are spying on you pretty much around the clock. But why, Mr. McGuire? Do you want to know the terrifying truth? Or do you want to see me sock a few dingers? Dingers! 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 <clears throat> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Drungo Hayeswood Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most relevant news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them an objective quality ranking. Item number one on the report this week, as illustrated by Baltimore Sports Support Network's own Zach Wilt on the BSR blog this week, Tillman's velocity has dropped here in the second month of the season. Since his opening day start, his average fastball velocity has dropped from about 94 miles per hour to just under 92 With the rash of pitching injuries this season, I'm sure we're all very concerned about this trend. Or if you weren't before, you probably are now, so you're welcome for that. Sam, what ranking would you give Tillman's recent fluctuations? I would give them Manny Machado getting eaten up by a bouncing ball off the turf at the Trop. Which is to say, I don't think they're reflective of his true ability level. Uh, I I don't think it's the velocity that's in question here. Um, as Zach actually points out in the piece at BaltimoreSportsReport.com, if you look, uh, his velocity is right now at the level that it has actually been for the majority of his career, and he's also had a lot of he also had a lot of fluctuation in velocity last season as well, and still ha- still had a very successful season. Um, so the question becomes, what is going on? Why is he not having good results lately? The main knock on Chris Tillman after the 2012 season where he really broke out was that he had an abnormally low batting average on balls in play from opposing hitters. But in 2013, that went up to 271 from 222, which is where it was in 2012. But in 2014 so far, it's 273. So it doesn't seem like that's the problem. If you look at his fielding independent pitching in 2013, it was 4.42. In 2014, it's 4.48. If you look at the number of home runs per nine innings that he's giving up, in 2013 it was 1.4, this year so far it's 1.3. So where is the problem? By all of the advanced metrics, Chris Tillman is basically the exact same pitcher that he was last year. Oh, wait a minute! (laughs) 
Let's take a look at that walk rate, Smith. Uh-oh, uh-oh. In 2012, which was again the year that Chris Tillman broke out, his walk rate dipped to 2.5 walks per nine innings. It nipped up last year to three, but this year it's all the way up to 3.6. Guess when the last time it was that high was? 2011, which were back in the over five ERA days of Chris Tillman. So I think basically what we're talking about here is Chris Tillman is just walking a few too many guys. If he can stop walking as many guys, which I think we've seen he's capable of doing, I think we're going to get the Chris Tillman that we're used to back just like Manny Machado is going to not get eaten up by too many more bouncers off the turp at the trop. I think that that's all fair. Um, I think the reason why, however, I'm giving this a uh, a double as hit by an opposing batter into the gap um, is that I, I'm just not sure that Chris Tillman uh, is the elite pitcher that we keep on making him out to be. Uh, and I appreciate those statistical analyses, but I'm too much. Uh, I, I've I, I've I've been around for too many uh, thirty start periods of time when Jake Arrieta appeared to be a good pitcher, and when um, Zach Britton appeared to be a good pitcher, for me to believe that suddenly Tillman the that the 2012 mid 2013 period is in fact the rule, and everything else is the anomaly. Um, oh my! So I, w- w- careful now, Smith. You you <laughs> could be uncorking a scandal rocket here in Hootenanny Studios. I'm just not convinced he's elite. You don't buy Chris Tillman as the ace of our staff. I buy him as the ace of our staff, but I think that's much more a reflection of our staff than it is about Chris Tillman. Oh well, here here I've thought we were on the same Chris Tillman page <laughs> for the last 93 episodes. Look, he has done some very good stuff after he's given up a bunch of runs. Um, I was really impressed in that game where he. Uh, you know, through like eighty six pitches and forty pitches in the first inning. Yeah, and the other game against the Jays when he gave up like six runs in the first two and still managed both times to make it through six. You know, through too many pitches, but but sort of gutted it out. Um, I think that that's good. I think that he is a gutsy pitcher. I'm not sure that he has the uh, the stuff to put together like an elite run through the Major League Baseball season for a year. Well, we have different feelings about Chris <laughs> Tillman Smith. <laughs> Item number two on this week's Drungo Hayeswood franchise report. Boy, I love saying that name. <laughs> the mighty continue to fall. Earlier this evening, Juan C. Rodriguez of the Miami Sun Sentinel reported that the Marlins anticipate Jose Fernandez, widely regarded as the best young pitcher in baseball, will require season-ending Tommy John surgery on his right elbow. It's getting a little tough to keep track here, Smith, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to run down the list of players who've lost the 2014 season to Tommy John surgery so far. Woof. Corey Lebke, Miguel Sano, Luke Hochaver, Chris Medlin, Brandon Beachy, Jared Parker, Patrick Corbin, Bruce Rondon, David Hernandez, Corey Guerin, Bobby Parnell, Jamison Tyon, Matt Moore, Ivan Nova, Josh Johnson, Pedro Figueroa, A.J. Griffin, and now Jose Fernandez. That information, by the way, comes from MLBReports.com, who are keeping a running list. Smith, what do we make of this? Ah, uh, man, I'm going to give this a uh, a Harvey start from 2013. Ah, uh. which is to say, um, Major League Baseball has a serious problem here. They have a serious problem that they're going to have to figure out. The NBA is making a run at becoming the second most um, watched and enjoyed sport in America right now. 
And uh, hockey has a very interesting playoffs going on. And one of the reasons that I think that the NBA is very successful is because they have very marketable stars. And the NBA is a game where you get to see these guys in person. You get to see them all the way through an entire game. You get to really know the top 10 players in the league. And you really get to have a feeling not only what LeBron James is like, but what Damian Lillard is like and what Tim Duncan is like. So that every team has two or three guys that you feel like, uh, even if you're a casual fan, you have a sense of as people. Major League Baseball has a one-up on hockey and football because they have all these marketable stars that because of the way the game is shot and paced and 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 you can watch these people you watch them move around you watch them interact with each other in the dugout you get to see them with their helmets off without these face masks that make them into these terrifying faceless behemoths and i think that if you can't keep the people who we want to watch on the field the product is really not going to be that good I think that we all talk about rooting for laundry all the time, and in some ways we do. We, you know, we're going to root for the Orioles regardless of who was on the Orioles team. But if if it's not the people that you came to see, you're not going to go see them. It's hard to get excited about Preston Gilmet. <laughs> One, two, three inning today in the top of the ninth. <laughs> so, so uh, I guess my question for you, Smith, is: Do you think what we're talking about here with the rash of the the sort of Tommy John? outbreak that's going on in the major leagues this year are we looking at a problem on the same order of magnitude as the nfl's issue with concussions to the point where if the issue is not resolved it could reduce the sports viability over the long term is this a moment where they need to act to prevent that from happening I, I think that the the difference, obviously, is that we don't have any reason to believe that someone who goes undergoes Tommy John surgery then has a, a, a lower and less happy life expectancy. Sure. Like, we're sure. not seeing that sort of human toll in the same way. I think it's much more from a marketing perspective because the NFL has proven that it can use guys up and toss them out and the next wave of people will be coming up and hitting harder and running faster and that because people show up for the blood sport of the NFL then they're fine that's it, it's actually playing into the way they market the game so but that's very interesting then it is the real question then is major league baseball reducing its market cap by being more responsible with its players' bodies. Well, it, it, it's also a problem about how we've always watched the game, right? Because people, the reason people care about baseball is the history and the sport. And we want to know how um, Steven Strasburg could have stacked up against, you know, um, uh, uh, Nolan Ryan or uh, uh, a Maddox. Or, you know, we, we, we want to be able to do that sort of comparison. And if all of these guys are just missing a year and a half... Uh, in the middle of these careers, sometimes twice, twice, oh, three times, or if we don't even know, we don't know if 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 Strasburg is going to be able to have a full career. We don't know how Bunny's going to do in the long term. We're just at the point now in these surgeries where everyone's getting them, but we don't know how that plays out in five, seven, ten years, um, and if, whether these guys are ne- ever going to be back to the sort of fireballers they used to be. I think it's a fundamentally different sport, and because it's of its difference, this could be as dramatic as concussions have been in reshaping the NFL's landscape. Um, but I think it's it's more insidious and worse for the followers of the game. Gotcha. Well, uh, on that, on a somewhat similar note, I'm going to give this a Ken Burns piano tremolo in the <laughs> baseball documentary. Uh, because when you look at the followers of the game, I think the real sadness here, obviously it's very sad for Jose Fernandez, but it also is the responsible thing as far as we know, 
in terms of the sports science right now. It's the responsible thing for him to do to prolong his career. Absolutely. But the really sad thing about it is that the Marlins are having an incredible season. Yeah. They're, they are, I think, far and away the most exciting team in the National League right now because they keep winning yep. with nobody yeah. on the team except for Giancarlo Stanton, yeah. who is absurd. He Who's just drove monster. in his 40th run. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. I think the thing that's encouraging if you're a Marlins fan is if you look at the other guys in the starting rotation, Jose Fernandez is not doing this all by himself. That's true. You have Nathan Neovaldi, whose ERA is 2.86. You have Henderson Alvarez, who's pitching to a 3-3 ERA. You have Tom Kohler, who has a sub-2 ERA, which probably isn't going to last. Now, it hurts anytime you lose a starting pitcher who's striking out 12 guys in a game uh, on average, but... It's not going to change the fact I don't think that the Marlins are still a really good story. They're finding ways to do it with an incredible core of young talent. And I think if you're a Marlins fan, what's really sad about this is you know that core of young talent is not going to stay in Miami. (laughs) Because it never does. It's true. And it seemed like there was at least some fringe chance that this might be a year where they could put it all together and surprise some people. Finally this week... We've dumped on professional sports enough because we did pass a major milestone when St. Louis Rams selected Michael Sam in the seventh round of the Nash- of the NFL draft. In the seventh round of the NFL draft. Sam, as you, I'm sure, already know, is the first openly gay player drafted by an NFL team. And while the reaction to the news has been largely positive, we do want to highlight that some of Sam's fellow athletes didn't take too kindly to the passionate kiss he shared with his boyfriend live on ESPN, When he learned of his selection, as reported by Jeff Eisenberg on Yahoo Sports, Miami Dolphins defensive back Don James, Don Jones, was suspended by his team for tweeting that the kiss was horrible, while Ole Miss basketball player Marshall Henderson tweeted that he would boycott SportsCenter until this, quote, Michael Sam nasty ass shit is off. Henderson later claimed that his outraged tweet was not, in fact, his opinion, but rather a contribution to the psychological research project being conducted by a gay friend to gauge people's response to unpopular opinions. That is probably the weakest cover ever for a stupidly sent tweet. (laughs) Sam, is this a sign of progress or has the madness merely deepened? Uh, I'm going to give this a Jose Fernandez Tommy John surgery. <laughs> oh God! And and this is why this this is why. Oh no! First off, most of the response to this has been very positive, which I think is something that warms my heart about the country that we live in in a way that, frankly, is sort of unexpected. Um, I I really wasn't expecting the positivity of this to be so prevalent, but um, I think so because of that. Nothing that has happened in the aftermath of Michael Sam being drafted has put Michael Sam in any physical danger that I'm aware of. It's probably caused him some emotional success, but he's a big, strong man, and I think that he can, <laughs> he, probably, <laughs> he can probably handle it. So with that in mind, I think what we're seeing is necessary for the culture. I think we're seeing the dying throes of idiocy uh, playing out in front of us on social media. Um, and it's, it's very similar to a Tommy John surgery in that in the short term, it's extremely painful emotionally, um, to, to deal with the reality of it, but it's what's necessary in the long term for the entire corpus to be stronger and, and the best that it can be. We need to be forced to have this public reckoning with the reality that Michael Sam's sexuality has nothing to do with his ability to be an elite football player. In fact, that's a part of his private life and has no bearing on 
his ability to tackle people with great force. <laughs> and that we would not balk if a male football player kissed his girlfriend when he found out that he was drafted. And in fact, it's a little weird that we take a television camera and stick it in someone's home <laughs> to record this moment in the first place. <laughs> all true. And all, all of true. these things are being raised by this. And right now it's weird and it's icky and people are saying dumb things, but it's so much better than it used to be. Absolutely. And the next time this happens, we're not even going to have this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think that those particular tweets and this particular, uh, you know, the stupid things people did say, and there were some, I mean, not just from other players, but from from the Twitterati, um, in which, you know, I, I would give all that the rating of a uh, a change up that plunks you right in the in the in the butt. <laughs> you get turned around, it plunks you right in the the big soft part of your ass, and it hurts a little bit. But you walk down to first base, and there's really no damage done. Now, I, I do have a critique because Sam was the co SEC Defensive Player of the Year last year. He was an All-American. The SEC is by far the biggest, strongest, fastest, most dominant league in um, college football. And his co-defensive player of the year went number 17 overall uh, in the draft. Now, I understand uh, that Sam didn't have a great pro day. He didn't. Um, he, he, he's a little bit undersized. He only sort of has one move in rushing the quarterback. But I think that fundamentally... Uh, you really can't convince me that a team wasn't going to take a flyer on him in the three to five round, except for the fact that they were worried about whatever controversy would come from cutting him if you didn't like how he turned out. Um, and even if you cut him for particularly football reasons, I think people were afraid that there would be a, a, a kerfuffle around that. Now, I think the problem that Sam has is he just has to be the one to go out and do this the first time and to uh, play on his merits and be make the team on his merits and be cut on his merits if that's what he deserves. And then in the future, this will not be an issue. But I really think it's kind of ridiculous that he went in you know the, the low 200s. I think it was 289th overall draft pick. Um, and his co-player of the year who was recognized as the other person who was as good as him is somebody who went 17th overall. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, that'll do it for the Drungo Hayeswood franchise report. It's also, unfortunately for you, the last time that you get to hear the name Drungo Hayeswood in this podcast and indeed possibly ever in your life <laughs> because he did not have a remarkable career. But we pause to honor his legacy every week here on Baltimore Eyes. <laughs> Let's jump on the phone right now with sports writer Wendy Thurm to talk about the fact that MLB apparently found the content of Oriole Spastics and Bird's Eye View too hot for iTunes. <laughs> right after this. And yanked them. We'll talk about that coming up next. Well, folks, in case you didn't catch the subtle hint from our introduction, last week Major League Baseball and or iTunes, again, it depends which one of them you ask, unleashed a startlingly draconian crackdown on a number of independently produced baseball podcasts, filing copyright claims against programs about the Twins, the Padres, the Rangers, and wounding us particularly close to the quick here at Hootenanny Studios, 
two of our Sister Wife Orioles podcasts here at the Baltimore Sports Report Network. These shows, and numerous others, woke up last Wednesday to a curt and annoyingly vague email from Apple informing them that their shows had been unceremoniously pulled from the iTunes podcast directory. MLB has since claimed that the removal of the shows was, quote, an oversight on the part of Apple. And while some of the shows have since been reinstated, a lot of folks are still sitting in limbo without any information about why their shows were pulled, wondering if they'll ever reappear in iTunes. Needless to say, the incident sparked outrage all across the independent baseball media landscape, including one of the most influential outposts of smart, not remotely MLB-affiliated commentary, Fangraphs, where Wendy Thurm, a Bay Area sports writer and self-described recovering lawyer, wrote a post in which she points out that the crackdown wasn't just short-sighted, it may not even be legal. Wendy, welcome to Baltimoreans. Glad to be here. So you say in your post that the, the basis of MLB's claim against these podcasts is copyright infringement, but you don't think that argument really holds water, do you? Actually, trademark infringement, not copyright infringement. They're similar, but my understanding from the letter that Major League Baseball sent to Apple, which was then released publicly and published you know, a variety of places before I got to my post, uh, indicated trademark infringement. So, And the, the marks... The trademarks at issue, as I understand it, were logos and names associated with particular teams and and perhaps, you know, the MLB logo um, and, the, and the MLB name. So I went of the podcasts that had been identified publicly as the ones that had been taken down. I went through and looked at the titles and I looked at the thumbnails it might have said something like a Cubs themed podcast, or, right? You know, a podcast where we talk about the Minnesota Twins or something like that, right? And then there was either uh, like a small piece of a logo or something that looked like you know the logo of a team. So, you know, the issue legally is whether or not a consumer is going to be confused into thinking that that the trademark owner, in this case, either Major League Baseball or one of the teams, is endorsing the product, right? Uh, the other issue is whether the use of either a logo or a name by parties that aren't you know, authorized to do it in some way dilutes the mark. Right. Uh, so let's take the first one. Trademark law uh, does, is not an absolute. For example, there's a lot of law in the area of kind of critiquing major brands. Sure. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's case law that says, you can have a website called Nike Sucks.com <laughs> or, you know, McDonald's is gross.com because the consumer isn't going to be confused that McDonald's is endorsing it. And there's also no way to kind of have that content about that product unless you use the name. My understanding for example, is the guys at Bleacher Nation, which is a, a, a cop's blog and, and podcast. Yeah. Um, Brett. Brett over there wrote a whole thing saying, you know, he noticed that he had a little, you know, Cubs logo on the, on the on the microphone, and you know, he took it out, and and you know, if they had just approached him, you know, that would have been fine. I mean, I don't really think that's infringing, and I think it it really is stretching the law to say a consumer would would be confused. I mean, there's tons of blogs out there that talk about games that describe Cubs players, that why they're kind of enforcing it with respect to podcasts. I'm not really sure. It seems like a, it seems like a pretty weak case. And then some people come back and say, well, you know, they have a strong mark and they need to protect their mark. You know, not really. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever going to make the argument that, that major league baseball's mark has been diluted because, 
you know, a fan sponsored podcast that gets, you know, whatever, 500 listeners a month or whatever. <laughs> Boy, that'd know. be nice. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Um, that, that, you know, that that's, that's diluting a mark. That actually, that really leads into our next question here, which is that, um, as you point out in your post, baseball fans are statistically speaking much older than fans of other sports, which is why MLB has aggressively marketed to younger viewers with things like the fan cave and MTV twos off the bat with David Ortiz and fat Joe, uh, leaving aside the question of whether or not one of the oldest active players in baseball and Fat Joe are the ideal candidates to connect with youth, can you think of a reason MLB would want to push away audience members of podcasts, which tend to be uh, pretty young, hip, and if we could pat ourselves on the back, intelligent type of people? I, I think there's kind of an interesting question as to whether this signals that Major League Baseball you know, just kind of wants to clear the field whether they have something planned, you know, they were very, very aggressive with respect to taking down YouTube video. And then they got in that business themselves by, by creating an MLB channel. And so, you know, for me, it raises the question as to whether that's what's really going on yeah, uh, or whether they're just, you know, pushing their power around. I mean, as I, as I said in the blog post, you know, MLB and Apple have a close personal relate. I mean, they have a close business relationship. I mean, you know, and the game day at the at bat app is, you know, one of the highest grossing app downloads of all time on yeah. iTunes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I remember when I was in practice, you know, I, I used to be frustrated by, but always appreciated clients that said, you know, I can't run my business as if it were being run by lawyers. You know, I understand that you're giving me X advice and I understand these might be my rights, but I need to go about it in a way that makes sense for my business. Yeah. I'm not sure how much sense it makes for MLB's business to be, you know, kind of pissing off younger, you kind of rabid, you know, fans who spend free time, you know, their own resources to put together these podcasts. They might just want to have team you know, related podcasts, uh, you know, that are that are specifically, you know, done by, you know, whether it's the social media people at a team or the communications, right. you know, some something like that. Um, and they just want to clear the decks for that. I mean, I'm just conjecturing, but sure. it wouldn't surprise me in the least. Well, from that position of conjecture, then um, I, we were particularly interested to read your piece criticizing MLB Advanced Media. Um, because at least in part, you're a regular contributor to Sports on Earth. Would you have any concern about <laughs> jeopardizing your standing in there by writing this piece on Fangraphs, or does MLB not that childish? I really, I really have no idea. <laughs> Fair enough. It's a, it's a first. Enough. I mean, um, you know, I I've, I've written a lot of things, you know, critical about Major League Baseball, particularly last year when we went through the whole biogenesis thing yeah, and I was very aggressively critical of the way I thought that the league was interpreting its documents and Mm -hmm. the way it was handling itself in that investigation. And I never heard one, one peep out of anything at sports on earth, but you know, so no, no one's ever approached me about that. And I guess if, you know, they do, I guess I'll have to cross it. Well, (laughs) if if we may keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Okay. But don't give anyone any ideas. Like, Now someone's going to pick this up and say, "Hey, <laughs> don't worry, we're 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 probably dark as far as MLB is concerned at this point. Anyway, yeah. we're not sure. We're not even sure if these things are still turned on. <laughs> if they were listening, they probably would have shut us down a long time ago. Do you guys have an understanding as to why you were pulled? Well, actually, we weren't pulled, but we're part of a network with a bunch of other shows which were pulled, 
And uh, so it's very, we've been sort of trying to sort that out because we definitely mention the Baltimore Orioles in our podcast description in iTunes. We don't use the mark, but we don't say unofficial anywhere. One of the other um, podcasts that has even less branding than we do and does use the word unaffiliated was pulled. So uh, it's, Which it's, one was that? it's called um, Bird's Eye View. Uh-huh. They're, they they got they got ganked. But there, there's another podcast in our network, which uh, stay with me now is an Arrested Development themed Orioles podcast. So it, it's it's sort of hard to imagine anybody assuming that the Orioles as an entity had anything to do with putting that together. But they got pulled as well. And as I understand it, Lehman and the Geek was put back up. Yes. yes. Yeah, and a number and, a number of the ones you you cited in your piece are are back in the iTunes store, but uh, our our colleagues here at the network have at, at least as of us rolling tape tonight, they haven't been reinstated yet. I I don't really have any other you know any other insight as to kind of why you know why it happened the way it did. I'm sure if you peruse through the comments on the article, or if you were smarter and didn't peruse through the comments on the article, I can tell <laughs> you that. Uh, you know, a lot of people took me to task for like not understanding the law, which, you know, I just kind of roll my eyes at. Yeah, I'm um, sure they're all legal experts. And and then, you know, the second one is like, why do you assume that it wasn't just a mistake? And, you know, also it's like, well, it's not fixed. Right. I, I'm not really making an assumption. They sent a letter to Apple right. and, you know, and they're still not up and they didn't direct Apple to reinstate them. Right. Um, and I guess I've been in the legal and business world long enough to know kind of how these things work. I guess the big picture is I really think is a shame. I mean, I think if MLB wants to issue guidelines like these things are great, they're bringing in young fans, they're, you know, people are getting enthusiastic and what, you know, you can call it a themed this or an unofficial that and don't use the logo. That's contra the direction where they're going. And they're moving further and further away from the idea of independent, you know, wanting more of kind of independent uh, analysis, independent commentary about the sport. And it strikes me that that's exactly the other direction that the rest of the internet is moving. <laughs> I mean, I guess we're going to have to have the discussion at some point about, you know, who's allowed to mash up what pieces of music and the intellectual property discussion is going to continue on a pace. But it does seem like everybody else is moving in the other direction except for MLB. I mean, just take the other sports leagues. Yeah. I mean, you know, NBA, you know, there's always whenever anything happens, when anything cool happens in a game, I mean, it's on YouTube in five minutes and it's great. It's great for the game, you know, that, you know, you miss something and you can kind of just easily, you know, see a highlight. So it's not even just the internet in general. I mean, sports leagues, you know, other leagues just take kind of a different approach uh, to this. And I guess it remains to be seen which will ultimately turn out to be the, you know, the better way. Well, so I guess that sort of leads us to a, a bit of a closing question here, which is uh, there's, uh, I'm sure you know the, the columnist Craig Calcaterra on NBC Sports. He's made um, this argument a couple times that we find pretty fascinating, which is that he thinks that independent sports writers and content creators uh, should basically take the approach that if MLB wants to in-house as much of the sort of day-to-day, blow-by-blow team coverage as they can, independent voices should take that as a cue to try to dig deeper, tell better stories, tell the stories that the team's PR offices won't allow, um, and that if we just kind of stake our voices on that mission, that ultimately will be what wins or loses the battle. Which I 
I think is a, is a smart but also sort of market-based solution. So I'm, I guess I'm just wondering what you think about that. Do you think there should be some checks on the ability of MLB to exert this much control? Or is it something that's just going to play out, as you say? I'm not really sure where Craig comes down on the question of kind of independent access. I mean, I'm not now or may, maybe in the future I will be a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but I do understand that, you know, there is concern within that organization of Major League Baseball moving toward, you know, a much more centralized uh, information distribution system that would cut down even further on kind of independent access to the players. The collective bargaining agreement now, you know, it, it says, you know, how much time clubhouses need to be open, you know, uh, to have access and, and all of that stuff is negotiated. I know, I know what Craig says, you know, the lineup, uh, injury reports, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a commodity, it's commoditized now. And there's absolutely no reason that, for example, beat writers should spend any time on that. Just right. like, let, if people want to know that, they can follow the team Twitter. I would share their concern at the notion that they're going to end up with kind of less and less kind of unstructured access. And, you know, my understanding is the players want to shorten that even more. And that, you know, when the players and the owners are negotiating, the owners are like, okay, you know, <laughs> you know okay, well, sure. That's something that they're, as I understand it, you know, kind of willing to give on. Right. And, you know, there's not going to be anybody in that room negotiating when the next CBA is negotiated that's going to be um, fighting for, you know, to, to, to keep access, you know, for the players to to independent writers. So I think there is a valid concern about that. You know, if access is more tightly controlled, how you take what you're given and, quote, dig deeper as you, you know, describe Craig's you know, proposal. And I've, you know, I've read all this stuff and I think it's intriguing. I just, you just kind of wonder, I mean, how yeah. do you develop sources? You right. know, how do you, de- how do you get access to players, you know, to be able to just go up to any player in a clubhouse, which I have to say is still weird and intimidating. I mean, I've <laughs> sure. questioned, oh my gosh. Yeah. I've questioned a lot of people under oath in court, you know, whatever, but to like <laughs> walk up to a guy who's basically wearing some nice pajamas and start <laughs> asking him questions in his living room essentially is just weird. And, but that's just the way it is. So you just, you know, but to lose that, I think would be, I think it would be a shame. I really do think it would be a shame. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Wendy, for taking the time to join us this evening. You, uh, Baltimoreans, can read Wendy Thurm on Sports on Earth. You can find her on Fangraphs and on Twitter at Hanging Sliders. Check her out on all those formats. Wendy, when uh, we are shut down uh, later this month, we will ask for you to be our representation. We'll try to fight the MLB machine. <laughs> I, I am a, I'm an inactive member of the bar, so I... I, I... <laughs> Well, we're we're an inactive member of the sports media, so it, okay. it's going to work out fine. <laughs> we're we're active members of the bar, but it's a different kind of bar. Okay, yeah, well, that too. <laughs> You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. I'm Sam Dingman. And this over here is Alan Smith. Well, we have done it again, Baltimoreans. We have unearthed another relevant historical document from the depths of baseball history. Through you, 
our extensive network of listeners, the following story was found in a used bookstore tucked inside a 1944 Encyclopedia Britannica letters N through P. As far as our crack team of legal historians can ascertain, we're pretty sure this is a first-person account, a journal that we've been able to date to the late 1950s and the early career of an aspiring young surgeon whose life was about to be changed forever. It tells a tale more shocking and confounding than any yet heard on our air. So prepare yourself, ladies and gentlemen, for the horror of the House of Dr. Andrews. When I had obtained, at the age of 27, a degree from a decently reputable medical establishment, I began at once to seek a gainful employment in my chosen field of study. I was, at first, disappointed in this search, as my desire to work in the cutting edge of cutting flesh was overwhelmed by my lack of experience with the scalpel. It was through my father, a man of not insubstantial means, that I was able to make the acquaintance of one Dr. Horatio Fassbender, M.D. The doctor, well known in surgical circles, was a peculiar man to first look on. So sharp and angular that light could not stick on his features, dancing away to leave his eyes in perpetual shadow. He was tall, lean, and hunched, but with a ferocious focus that would leave many confused and stumbling over their words. What's more, Fassbender had made a great fortune healing nearly impossible injuries in mangled wrists or hamstrings where others saw only grim amputation. He saw hope. I contrived to be seated next to this strange man over dinner, and soon we were speaking of the surgical practice that he had. As I began to describe the things I'd read of Everett Coop and Blaylock, he stopped me with a raised hand. Why, James, every minute, he said with some warmth, every instant that you've wasted on those men is utterly and entirely lost. You've burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God, in what desert land have you lived, where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies, which you've so greedily imbibed, are as good as a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. I was struck by his passion, and agreed at once to seek out some of the texts that he recommended, and that might have been the extent of this story, had it not been for a twist of fate. It was not but a few weeks later that Ms. Lang, my recent mother-in-law, was out riding, only to have her horse twist his leg in a groundhog hole and throw her from his back. She landed awkwardly, with her arm caught beneath her, and the ligaments in her elbow were quite ruined. We knew at once that her lifelong passion for pumpkin tossing was suddenly in very real danger, and I was dispatched at once to seek the assistance of the master. Arriving at his offices, I strode quickly up a long drive, decorated on either side with boxwoods that had been shaped like athletes, throwing, running, diving, hitting. Then it was through the ornate wrought iron gates, up six wide marble stairs, between two giant columns, and into a remarkably unassuming waiting room. Simple, 
with beige walls. A few people magazines on a glass table. A non-committal seascape done in simple light pastels. A quirky lamp between two also beige chairs. A mild-mannered receptionist glided into the room, and after hearing my babble of information about the horse riding fall, welcomed me to seat myself in the most comfortable of the beige chairs. I did so. But my agitation at the situation in which I had left Ms. Lang soon had me up again and pacing. Surely Dr. Fossbender must arrive soon. There was only a single door other than that one through which I'd entered, and in desperation I tried the handle. It was not locked. Sure that I was only doing the best thing for my father's wife, I entered, and at once found myself in a long gray hallway. A neon light flickered overhead. The septic odor of industrial cleaning fluid that, despite the lemon tinge, never really covers the acidic tang of blood. I began to move down the hallway, slowly at first, then faster, faster, peering wildly into room after room. Most were empty of people, containing books and charts, but in my search for the good doctor I started to see some things that confused my mind and turned my stomach. In one room I saw a table covered with taxidermied squirrels, but with the heads of much larger animals grotesquely attached, a rabbit a cat, even a deer. In another, a panorama of photographs of a naked Sandy Koufax, focused in on his bicep and elbow from nearly every angle. In a third, a pig lay dead in a pool of blood, with what appeared to be all the tendons in its legs recently removed. And, at nearly a dead run now, a glimpse through a tiny window, nothing more, of a human form suspended in a tube of glass. It would seem impossible that this were anything more than a specimen exactly preserved for future study, and yet in that moment, it was impossible to escape the notion that the man, if indeed it was a man, was simply in a heavy sleep. There was a chilling epitaph engraved in gold on the center of the door. Gehrig. I ran. Finally, I heard voices. The flat staccato of Dr. Fassbender and the more mellifluous sounds of the receptionist. He, we haven't much time and I've got to reconstruct Herb's face tomorrow afternoon. I'm simply not ready. And she, Doctor, the young man seemed quite out of sorts. I urge you to... As I flung open the door, they both turned to look at me and I froze in my tracks. There, stretched on the table and covered in green ooze, lay Chicago Bear's tailback Gale Sayers. Though the grimace of pain that contorted his features made him nearly unrecognizable. Dr. Fassbender was holding a giant metal contraption which resembled nothing as much as a ram's head made of gold, and his receptionist, wearing a welder's apron, held a large leather awl and a spool of metallic thread. Gale's knee was split open like a watermelon dropped from the third floor, and the world swam, dipped, went dark.
James? James? When I came to, I was in a comfortable leather armchair with the secretary bending over me with a wet rag. As my eyes fluttered open, she smiled down at me. My goodness, she cooed. You took quite a blow on the head. I sat up. What was that? What was what? She asked blankly. I returned to the reception area to find that you'd taken a tumble on the throw rug. All that pacing around. I told you to sit still. No, I hissed, grabbing her arm. No lies. I know what I saw. But she was imperturbable and soon had me up and on my way. I closed not my eyes that night. My internal being was in a state of insurrection and turmoil. I felt that order would thence arise, but I had no power to produce it. By degrees, after the morning's dawn, sleep came. I awoke, and my yesternight's thoughts were as a dream. There only remained a resolution to return to my studies, and to devote myself to a science for which I believed myself to possess a natural talent. I knew I would seek out Dr. Fassbender, but I also knew that I would one day surpass him. Over the years, I would learn his darkest secrets and most obscure rites, and I would make his magics my own. It would take a lifetime, but the world would learn to know the name of Dr. James Andrews. That's the man in whose horrifying <laughs> care we are soon to consign young Maddie backstops. Be careful, Matthew. Oh, Please God, be, be careful. careful. Please be careful. That that bit about the split watermelon. Oof. Who wrote that? Gruesome. Gruesome. <laughs> Dr. Andrews wrote that. It's his journal. Ah, yes, of course. Of course. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are uh, we are just about out of time. But but while actually uh, while we while we were were in the break room here at Hootenanny Studios, uh, Alan opened the refrigerator where he keeps his nightly ham sandwich. <laughs> A crucial part of the late late innings of the recording. Yeah, oh, you can't say that. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> uh, he takes out the sandwich, and there, written in mayonnaise on the rye bread, was a missive. Which means that we are once again bringing to you a an episode of Where in the World is Intern Scott Diego, who um, didn't let us know where he was this this week, but did manage to check in via my ham sandwich. Yeah. All it said in the mayonnaise was the following. And really, 
the ability to get th- this much in the small amount of ham real estate. <laughs> because I want you guys to know, Alan has been trying to watch his weight lately, so this was just a half sandwich. This is not a big sandwich here. This was a half sando. In mayonnaise, this is what it said. Cliff Lee's six-win season was actually 2012, but analysis is good. ERA, 316. Fielding independent pitching, 313. Now, as near as I can tell, Smith, <laughs> what Scotty meant by this uh-huh. is that on last week's episode, I suggested that in what I said was 2013, but was actually 2012, Cliff Lee won six games for the Phillies purely on the basis of pitching. <laughs> Certainly was not on the basis of anything that the rest of the Phillies organization was doing. And it would appear that while I got the year wrong, my observational analysis is borne out by advanced statistical metrics. All right. Because Cliff Lee gave up 3.16 runs per game according to the traditional way of calculating earned run average. But by virtue of the more advanced method, fielding independent pitching, which looks only at the factors which which the pitcher controls, his earned run average was almost identical. Well, my only complaint about this entire process is that at some point, not only did someone uh, write something in my mayonnaise, but they seem to have taken my goddamn pickle. <laughs> I, I also ate the sandwich. <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. All right, well... This program, as always, is written and produced by Sam Dinglin and Alan Smith and featured original theme music by Marshall York and don't tell me baseball. non-original music by Town Hall, Weather Report, Fish, and the Black Crows. You can find all the episodes of this show at our website, bemorons.com, where they will always be, or on iTunes, where they may or may not remain unscathed. We are also on Twitter, the bastion of free speech, at BMorons, and we would love it if you were to tweet to us or write to us or any of those things whenever you'd like. Alan, what would you call Henry Erudia when he is combined with Creep Cluster, Jazz Bay Grapes, Dwarven Oil, Rock Warbler Egg, a pile of salt, Scaly Foliota, and Torchbug Thorax to create the Weakness to Magicka potion in Elder Scrolls V? You would call him... Henry Taprudia. Farewell, Dragonborn. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. <laughs>